Welcome to Southside Community Church. Enjoy our Sunday morning message. Here we go. You know what the hardest thing about preaching is? There's a hundred people in this room, maybe a little bit less than that now, but all of us have our own ideas of what the good life is, of what a perfect human life looks like. That's hard to preach and to speak on behalf of what God says is true when I have my own ideas that I need to be humble and allow God to reshape through Scripture. And each of you have your own ideas of what a good life, the perfect human life, looks like. And which means that we all have to come into this Sunday morning gathering, which has been happening on Sundays for 2,000 years. Church isn't like a new thing. We started doing it after the Reformation. It's been happening since the resurrection. Communities would meet together in groups. And somehow, in a very ordinary time together, we would learn how to live the resurrection life. Because we have all been made new in Christ together. But that means that we have ideas that we need to open Scripture with a humble posture and say, I'm willing to be wrong. I'm willing to hear that I'm wrong on some things. And I want you to reshape what it looks like, what it means for me to be a good human and to live a good human life. Peter J. Daniels, who was a, uh, used to be a Christian businessman who would teach other people about how to live the good life, um, he had an interesting practice he would have people do. He would say, look at every category of your life. Finances, relationships, career, vacations, hobbies, the amount of freedom that you want in life. And write for each of those categories on one side of one sheet of paper what it would look like if you were operating at 100%. If your life was exactly what, it, what you wanted it to be right now. And then he said, take another piece of paper and for each of those categories, write in vivid detail where your life actually is, what it actually looks like in each of those categories right now. And then reverse engineer it and look and see where you want to be and where you are and figure out what's the next step to, where you, to get to where you want to be. Basically, he was inviting you to write out what the perfect human life looks like. It's an interesting exercise. I don't know if I would recommend it. Because the problem is you're making it up based on your own personal preferences. And what if your personal preferences are wrong? What if your personal preferences are misguided? What if you're chasing after the wrong things? And is it possible that even Christians sometimes have faulty definitions of what the good life looks like? The disciples did. Jesus was constantly correcting their notion of what the good life looks like. They knew they were invited to be a part of this kingdom. They thought they knew what it meant, and they had no idea what it meant. 
I'm going to start in Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, our, our passage is going to be in Ephesians 5, but I, I need to set it up for a little while. So we're going to go to Luke chapter 9 first if you want to follow along. And I just want to show you a couple instances where the disciples thought they knew, but they didn't have any idea. So Luke chapter 9, verse 46, the first things that the disciples thought they knew how to do right, live right, was greatness. That's what they wanted. They thought that was an essential piece of living the good life. So Luke 9, 46, an argument arose among them, the disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. Imagine that. The disciples are arguing, no, I'm the greatest. (laughs) Like, this actually happened. These were real people, and they were arguing over which one of them was the greatest. Now, that's a heck of a thing to argue about if you consider what had just happened right before there, where Jesus says in verse 44, the second half of verse 44, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus had just told them that he was going to be delivered over, and he had elaborated earlier that he was going to be killed. And the disciples were arguing over who's going to be the greatest. Now, greatness is actually something we should strive for. The problem is they had the wrong definition. Let's read what, how Jesus corrects them in verse 40, uh, let's see, 46, or 48, excuse me. And he said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least Among you all is the one who is greatest. I'll let you just think about that for a little while. It's okay to strive after greatness, but the one who is the least among you in the eyes of people is the greatest in the kingdom. Their idea of the good life was misguided, and Jesus had to correct it. He does it again a few sentences later in verse 51. Because the disciples also thought that another element, essential element of the good life is power. Again, it is power, but it's not the power they were thinking of. This involves two disciples, James and John. They were in Jesus' inner three, and Jesus gave them the nickname Sons of Thunder. And you're going to see a little bit why he called them Sons of Thunder. He was kind of, I think, poking at them a little bit. Like, you guys have a little bit of a temper. You're going to have to constrain that to be effective in the kingdom. Another idea they had was power. Let's look at uh, chapter 9, starting with verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Jesus is about to be crucified. He doesn't shy away from it. He goes right into the epicenter of where all this is going to go down. He knows he's going to be taken in and crucified. Verse 52, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So on the way to Jerusalem, we're going to stop and eat at Samaria. So he sent some people ahead to make preparations. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, so he's going through, they rejected him as Samaria because they're like, you're going to Jerusalem, we don't get along right now. You're not going to stay here with us. You're leaving anyways. We're not going to host you. We're not going to feed you. We're not going to take care of your disciples. James and John were mad about this. And here's what they said. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's nice. (laughs) Fire 
comes down from heaven a couple times and consumes people and things. And they were familiar with the Old Testament and they were like, let's bring fire down again. But he turned and rebuked them and they went on to another village. Their idea of the good life was power, but it was misguided. The disciples were all excited to be a part of the kingdom, but they didn't realize what that meant. I was listening to a podcast and the guy said, everyone wants to be a matador. Everybody wants the crowd watching them. Everybody wants to be in the middle of the arena and the center of the action until you actually get in the middle of the arena and you're alone with a 2,000 pound bull that's sniffing the air for you. They wanted to be in the kingdom. They thought they knew what it like, looked like to live the good life in the kingdom and they had no idea and Jesus was constantly correcting them. Which means it's possible that we might have some misguided ideas of what the good life looks like too. So do, let's do a quick exercise. I want you to imagine right now if you could snap your fingers and your life would be perfect right now what would your life look like? If you could snap your fingers and you walk out of this building and your life is exactly what you wished and wanted it to be, what would it look like? Now ask yourself, what if I'm wrong? What if my idea of the good life isn't actually what's going to be most satisfying and most fulfilling for me? And the question that this passage begs us to ask today is what if the perfect human life is actually a person who lives to make other lives great? What if you are actually a means to someone else's end? And what if Jesus commanded us and modeled for us to live that way? Because if you start living so that your life is great, you're actually going to get emptier and emptier and less and less content and satisfied. You're going to be the type of person who uses people around you to make you feel good. But if you live to make other people's lives great, then you can be a prey to the rest of the world and they can have whatever they want because you have the sovereign king of the universe looking after your needs. That's the potential of this passage. To be people who commit to submitting ourselves to the people around us in order to give ourselves over to a life of service. So now we're going to look at today's passage and we're going to turn to Ephesians. Or you can follow along in the, in the bulletin. Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm actually going to start with verse 20 and I'm going to end with verse 21 today. Because you guys know we're getting into this passage, wives submit to your husbands, and that's a, that's a terribly misunderstood and often mistaught, not always, but often mistaught passage. But in order to understand that passage, we need to be very clear, be very clear on what the verse right before that says. So that's where we're going to park today. All right, Ephesians 5, 20 and 21. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So with a spirit of gratitude and thankfulness, which is the highest mark of Christian maturity, you're grateful all the time. That is the highest. That's discipleship 10,000. 
you're always grateful in everything, at all times. So giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now you're ready for verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The perfect life that Paul is describing here is a person who, out of tremendous gratitude to God, chooses to honor the God who saved them by spending the rest of their life in loving service to others, by submitting themselves to the needs of others. That, friends, is the description of the perfect human life. Doesn't get any better than that. Now, if I were you, I would be asking for proof because that's a fairly radical shift from what we typically think of as the perfect human life. So the proof is consider Jesus. We're going to turn the pages to the right, just a couple pages to Philippians 2. And I want to give you a passage that I hope lodges itself in your thinking for the rest of your life because this is the supreme, perfect example, model of a human life. It describes Jesus. And we're just going to walk through it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. How are we doing? Do most of the things you do uh, without ambition or conceit. That would be easier. I mean, that would be easier to preach. That would be a little bit more gentle. We like gentle. That sounds good. And, you know, a pastor's trick is, well, in the Greek it actually says something a little bit different, but I don't think I can do that with this one. I think it actually says what it, what it means there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Do you guys see that? Does it say the same thing in yours? That cannot be right. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. You mean we're actually supposed to be more concerned with other people than our own needs? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the, to the interests of others. Which means you don't completely abandon your life You're, and give up all of your goals and not take care of yourself, but just be a martyr by serving other people and last maybe a year. We want you to have a good, long, fruitful life, which means you've got to take care of yourself as well. But the goal is to look to the interests of others as much as you look to your own interests. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, so you would not get there on your own. What he's saying is you need the mind of Jesus. And he's given that to you if you have surrendered and submitted yourself to Christ. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, he left the mansion to live in the slums with us. That's what that means. He left heaven to live on earth with us. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus modeled the good life 
the life of submitting himself to the point of hanging on a cross to serve others. In Ephesians 5, Paul tells us to submit to others out of reverence for Christ. In Philippians 2, we're forced to say, if Christ did it, if Jesus himself did it, then how am I supposed to say no? I, there are some stories that stick with me, so you're going to hear them because they, you're going to hear them more often than others because they're, they were like turning points in my life. And, and I'll just be honest, this is really hard. Every single one of us could judge every single other person in this room. Half of you could be judging me right now, like, you don't live that way, and I could be judging you. You don't live that way. We could all judge one another because no one in this room is Jesus. But what I want to do is challenge you, the same thing I'm asking the Spirit do for me, would you turn the mirror back onto me so that I can one of the har- do one of the hardest things that's, that could ever be done, and that is take an honest assessment of my own life. That's impossible apart from Christ. You're not going to be able to do it. So ask him right now to help you do that in the same way that I'm asking him to help me do that. Bryce Drew was one of the most servant-hearted people I've ever met. He was my roommate my freshman year. He was a really strong believer. He was Mr. Indiana in basketball, which means he was the highest-rated basketball player in the state of Indiana, and they happen to like basketball. He was a prize recruit. He could have went to Purdue. There's a lot of big schools he could have got full scholarships to, and he went to Valpo because his dad coached there. And everywhere we went, we'd go out to eat, we'd go to the mall. When I was with him, people would stop and be like, can I have your autograph? I mean, he's a good-looking guy. I mean, everybody loved him. Everybody knew him. He was famous. He was like a hometown hero. And then they'd like look at me and my other friends. They'd be like, "Uh, you can sign it too if you want. Uh, So how long, like, what's it? (laughs) Like, they didn't care about us. It was Bryce. And Bryce was, um, there was this girl that was, that was, had some health complications and because of her health complications you would look at her and say she probably doesn't you know maybe she doesn't take care of herself or she just doesn't have a lot of friends or she's she wasn't someone that people flocked to and she was in one of our classes and people um, just kind of ignored her neglected her and um, she um, missed a couple days one time and it it came back that when she returned, she said it was because she had some health complications. She had to call the ambulance because no one would take her to the hospital. Um, she wasn't like an attractive person. And, and Bryce went up to her and said, here's my number, and you can call at any time. It's Greg and I's dorm room. One of us will take you to the hospital. And I'm like, one of us will take you? You'll take her to the hospital. I'm not taking her to the hospital. So we're in the middle of season. It's like a, it's late night. And we get this phone call, Bryce answers it, and it's this girl. And we're in a, like an important time. I forget exactly now when it was in the season, but I feel like there was a game the next day and it was kind of a big night. And I'm like, hey, Bryce, we should get our sleep. Like, you need, you need to make sure you're getting your sleep. I need my sleep. I don't even play. You need your sleep. And he leaves and he takes this girl to the hospital and he's with her most of the night. He stays, he takes her back home. He got it. He knew that the good life wasn't being able to put a little orange ball through a hoop, as fun as and important that, that, as that is, and as good as you can, as, in all the ways that you can help and serve people in that way. I have to say that because I love basketball. But he knew that that was a means to an end. For Bryce, 
That wasn't actually the good life. The good life was submitting himself to the needs of people around him out of, out of reverence for Christ. I've also told the story of the Dallas bil- uh, businessman. Um, this was, I heard this from a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. He was friends with this guy, and he was like a CEO of this company, and um, he knew a lot of people in Dallas. He was kind of famous, very powerful, had a lot of money, and Howard Hendricks went to this guy's church this professor, and he said there were all these, these troubled teenagers that would just flock to this guy, and he would always give out a business card. He'd write his number on the back of this business card and say, wherever I am in the world or whatever I'm doing, if you call that and you don't get me immediately, I will call you back soon, and if you need anything, I'll be available. And he mentored people. He discipled people. He gave people resources. Um, he gave people jobs. He did everything that he could to to help people, and he actually passed away, and at his funeral, there were, it was a who's who of businessmen and people in Dallas, and, and there were hundreds of teenagers telling the same story. He gave me his number. This was a disciple of Jesus first and everything else second, because the good life is submitting yourself to the needs of people around you out of reverence for Christ. And I want to end by giving you a practical tool that you can hang on to that will help you begin to live this way. And you can write it in the margins of your Bible if you want by Ephesians 5.21 because this, this is actually Eugene Peterson's description of love. Alex and I are taking the long way through a, a book by Eugene Peterson. We were taking forever to get through it because we take like year-long breaks between chapters, but it's, it's an awesome book. And one of the, the definitions that Eugene Peterson gives of love in this book is willed passivity. Willed passivity. It means you're not just charging through your life with blinders on, hurting whoever gets in your way. It means you allow other people to shape how you spend your time and where you give your resources. Willed passivity. It means that you give other people's needs a place of priority on your to-do list. You don't live with blinders on. You know, we ought to have goals, and we ought to have a sense of direction, and we ought to know what, where we're going and what we're about. But most of Jesus' ministry happened out of interruptions. Most of Jesus' ministry happened when he was on the way to somewhere and someone interrupted him. And if we don't have enough space in our life where we're interruptible, then we're not living like Jesus. And we tend to push back on this idea of submitting our lives to the needs of others, but when we see it happen, we call it noble. Like imagine a famous actor or musician who quits their career at the height of their career in order to take care of a spouse who was just diagnosed with cancer. You know, that stuff actually happens and the people who see it call it noble because we know in our hearts this is actually the right way to live. This is the way of the kingdom. And this is what the church ought to look like, a community of people who are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ because that's what he modeled for us. Now there is a hierarchy to this. There's an order 
that we ought to abide by when it comes to submitting to people. Like there's certain people in our lives that ought to have priority in this mindset, in this way of life. And that's why Paul starts next with the next passage by talking about family, spouse, kids, workplace. Those are the three areas that he begins to unpack what it looks like to live a life of submission to others. So it's not like you just abandon your family in order to care for all these other people. And I'm going to share some things that have been helpful for me. And Kara uh, and I were at Dwayne and Nicole Bonner's house a little, little bit ago, and he shared something that was very helpful. I'll share that with you. And if you've never had, if you've never been to their house, by the way, and experienced the warmth of their um, hospitality, then you're missing out. You need to go find Dwayne and ask so you can come over. It's really good. But we're going to get into that next week. This week, you needed to know that the way of the kingdom is everybody submits to everyone all the time. And I'm not good at it. And neither are you. So let's ask God to help each of us do better. And um, that felt a little harsh. Some of you are better at it than others. Some of, you, some of you actually are pretty darn good at it. Let's learn together in this. Next week, we will start with wives submit to your husbands. As long as the husbands know, they're supposed to submit to their wives too. We good with that? All right, let's pray. Thank you for listening. Check out our website at southsideworcester.com.